0: Well, as you've been hearing on the news, measures to freeze the number of handguns in Canada are now in effect. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino saying earlier today handgun crime is up in Canada.
1: Going forward today, um, it will be illegal to buy, sell, transfer uh, or bequeath handguns. This is a significant stride forward towards smart, sensible gun policy to keep our communities safe.
0: Well, smart and sensible are not the words everyone is using to talk about this policy. And joining me now to talk about what this might look like and how it will change things as we move forward is Wes Winkle, who is the president of the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association, also the president at Elwood Epps Sporting Goods. Wes, thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me. Uh,
0: what will things, how will things change, do you think? And uh, talking uh, as uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, from the Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association, as far as we know that elite sports shooters would be exempt, I believe, from this freeze. But how do you think this will change or how will this change uh, people who are involved in sports shooting?
2: Well, just a couple points of clarification, if I may. Sure. Sure. Um, so the uh one of the points that was made was it limits the amount of handguns that are in the country and that actually was done back in august when they stopped the uh when they put an import freeze in so what the announcement today is is that the firearms owners can no longer trade guns amongst themselves so it actually doesn't it would not limit the amount of handguns in the country by any way shape or form that was done back in august uh the other point that would like to make is that uh, the elite sports shooters is actually not the case um, you know, kind of like in the sport of golf, the Olympic Games is not by any stretch the the top form of shooting uh, in competition shooting there 's many other uh aspects that are higher uh, events that that have uh, more trained shooters and uh, a lot higher uh, participation rates so most elite competition shooters are not exempted by this so that 's just a couple points of clarification as far as the um, what it does to our landscape is it, it, yeah it's it 's uh devastating um you know uh 33 percent of what we sell in canada when it comes to firearms are handguns uh they're only sold to licensed and vetted owners it takes nine months of uh of processing to get a firearms license you have to have your home inspected for your storage capabilities you have to have your all your background checks done you have to have uh checks done by your spouse and by uh, people that have known you um these are the most vetted owners in canada and uh to stop them from uh, transferring handguns amongst themselves, like the minister said, just makes no sense whatsoever. There's, there's no public safety enhancement whatsoever. It's just a matter of trying to shut down the firearms industry and to ensure there's no retained value in the people that own these things. It's uh, Again, a punishment from our government for uh, having a lifestyle that they don't approve of
0: right, because when you look at the the freeze on and if we take it apart, if we look at the freeze on transferring, so we could be talking about a scenario where there is a couple uh, two people spouses maybe they're legally married who knows but they live together they've lived together they both have licenses they've gone through the vetting process like you said they are legal law-abiding citizens they both own handguns it will now be illegal for one spouse say a spouse for whatever reason doesn't want one handgun anymore it would be illegal for that spouse to transfer it to the other spouse and somehow by making that illegal we've made the country safer
2: yes it makes absolutely no sense um You know, same with uh, if you have a a father that's uh, gone to the gun club shooting with his son for years. Uh, The father might be at an advanced age, 70 years of age. Now, when he's deceased, he cannot bequeath those guns to his son. They can't be transferred over anymore, even though they might have shot them together for years as a recreation at the same gun club. Um, Again, there's absolutely no enhancement to public safety. All these people still own their handguns. And, you know, if anyone wants to do something inappropriate, obviously, it only takes one. So to stop it from transferring amongst themselves uh, is is absolutely there is no enhancement to public safety at all. That that is uh, it's an impossible line to draw.
0: What has it done for, for you as the owner of, of Elwood's Apps or others that, that own stores, or what have you heard from others as far as, like you said, the, the importation was, was frozen? Because I think they didn't anticipate, and I'm not sure how they didn't anticipate, but they didn't think when they announced that these rules were coming that there would be a run of people with licenses purchasing. Uh, so since they've stopped the importing and now this, what has that do, this done to businesses like yours?
2: Well, like I said, it it removes one-third of our business, and, you know, uh, we have an industry that employs 45,000 people across the country, so by straight math, we're going to lose about 15,000 jobs, Uh, but, you know, people that have worked in this industry their whole lives and, again, have, you know, with all respect, have jumped through a lot of regulatory hoops. They've went out and got their licenses, they've done their training, they've always maintained a clean criminal record, because you have to to have the license. You know, uh, we've always been told that uh, in Canada, as long as we follow the regulations, will be allowed to participate in our sport. And then comes along this new Minister of Public Safety, and uh, because of uh, the fact that they run a few polls, and they polled some people that don't understand what the rules are, now they're going to say, that's it, we can no longer uh, transfer handguns amongst themselves. And people that have invested their hard-earned dollars in these items now have no retained value. And, uh, yeah, it's devastating. There's no other way to say it. Uh, I, I feel so sorry for uh, you know, our, our clientele and our staff that uh, we've had to take this kind of hit. Uh, I have many, many friends in the industry, uh, good family people. They're, they're volunteers in our community, and uh, we're attacking the wrong people. It, it's, it's devastating.
0: So who would be exempt then? Like you said, like when that, that one line that was in the story that elite sports shooters would be allowed to continue to buy handguns, uh, is it only people then that are at the Olympic level, or, or what is your understanding of who is still exempt?
2: Yes, we're understanding that it's at the Olympic level. Like most things when it comes to our current federal government's policy, uh, they implement things before they're ready to go. So nobody in the system really is quite sure what that actually entails. We talked to the chief firearms officers that are in charge of approving these transfers today, and they're not quite sure exactly at this point what an elite target shooter is. Uh, in the, um, uh, we obviously know what they are, but that's not what the government's going to think. But uh, uh, in this case, we are understanding that anyone that competes in the Olympics or is uh, uh, training to compete in the Olympics, but only in that specific uh, p- part of our sport. Uh, there's sports, uh, uh, many, many large competitions like uh, IDPA and uh, IPSC, which are even much larger sports and have a lot of training. And these are internationally recognized competitions with guys that have trained and, and ladies that have trained their whole lives to shoot in these competitions that are effectively being eliminated by this freeze.
0: And and so what will the future look like for you as far as with this in? And again, I mean, it is difficult to kind of figure out, and we've touched on this before, this freeze or this idea of freezing things the way they are now. It's almost as though the government is saying we're at the perfect number of guns in the country because they didn't come out and ban them. They've instead frozen them. I mean, does it appear to you that the end game is that by stopping the bequeathing and stopping the transferring, once the guns start to break, they just won't be replaced and that's how they're getting rid of?
2: them um i think at surface that's what it would appear but I, I think it's it's actually more shallow than that i think what it is is that they're trying to uh get a new cycle going where they can fool urban canadians into thinking that they're doing something about handgun crime when we all know that they, with the rules that they put in place with uh, uh minimizing sentences and making sure that uh, we have a revolving door criminal justice program that they've made it a lot easier for criminals to be on the street in, instead, now they want a news cycle saying that they're doing something about handgun crime when, in fact, they're not. Uh, they're doing what they've done a lot lately, which is attack the uh, a way of life that they don't approve of. And, you know, that's where this is at. Uh, it's just all about a news cycle and fooling people. You know, if you'd walk down the street with a microphone and you ask the, the average Canadian citizen what they think the handgun laws are now, they don't know at all. But then if you fall up and say, should handguns be banned, they'll always say yes because they don't think that they can do any harm. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you take the time to educate people, they, they realize that there's no way this will have any effect on public safety.
0: Right, because in, in essence, really, they are banned. They are banned, not like anybody can just walk in and buy one. Like you said, you need to be vetted. You need to go through the process of getting a license. You need to follow a whole lot of rules. You get put through the RCMP database to make sure you're following the rules. It's not as though it's a free-for-all. Anybody's buying them now anyway.
2: Absolutely. And don't forget, every one of these items is staying uh, in the current uh, place where they are now. So just like you said, uh, it it makes no sense. There's not anything being removed. It's just they can't trade hands amongst themselves. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Yeah, it's a frustrating day. uh, And it's on a series of many frustrating announcements in the last year by the Minister of Public Safety. Uh, uh, We're all left shaking our head.
0: Uh, just one other question I wanted to ask you, and it, it's one quote that the Prime Minister touted out today as well. And it uh, says, one in every three girls and women who is hurt or killed, it, it's because or it's a gun is used, which uh, it's one of those quotes that's put out there to be a catchy soundbite, and people will hear that and be horrified. But what the prime minister didn't say when he said this was what kind of gun. And again, I'm not condoning any kind of violence or any any of it is horrible, of course. But I find it quite misleading in that he doesn't qualify what type of gun that it's probably not a legal firearm. And one in three means two in three is not. But but what do you think when we hear quotes like that?
2: Again, just you identified it. It's a it's a soundbite that's intended to uh, give the illusion that something's being done about crime. When it's not the case, uh, and again, they don't elaborate in the stats. What's so frustrating about this current regulation being imposed today is that just on Tuesday, I was in Parliament uh, testifying uh, at the Security Council Committee uh, discussing these uh, exact uh, measures, and this bill has not passed through the parliamentary process. So there's been no due democratic process, but like we've seen many, many times now with these order and councils, the government just uh, announces that they're going to do this, even though it hasn't passed the process. And this is the case with this one. And when I was in Parliament on Tuesday debating, it came out that most of these stats they're talking about is trying to limit suicide. And, you know, that's a lot larger debate than what we're talking about when it comes to crime. They don't discuss that in the public eye, but when you get into the parliamentary chambers, that's what they discuss is that, you know, that uh, suicide is a lot less effective if there's no guns around. Well, you know, that could be debated back and forth. There's lots of stats to go either way. But also, that's not the honest conversation they're having with Canadians in the media. They don't ever mention that at all in the public eye. They use stats like you use today because, again, they want to create the illusion that there's an enhancement of public safety.
0: Yeah, um, Absolutely. It is a completely uh, different conversation. Uh, You're right. Wes Winkle, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us to talk more about this.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity. We appreciate it.
0: Thanks for being with us. Well, we are now taking a look at how people are feeling about the ongoing opioid crisis in Canada and not only in Canada, but how we're feeling about this and really monitoring this in BC, the provinces as well as in the United States. And there is quite a difference not only when you look province to province, but also when comparing Canada to the United States. That is the focus of a new survey which was done by Research Co and President Mario Seiko is with us to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Mario, thank you so much for being here.
3: My pleasure, Jill. Great to be here with you.
0: Great to to chat with you on a Friday afternoon. What specifically were you asking people in this one?
3: Well, we've been doing this tracking research uh, since 2019 in Canada. We asked the questions in the United States in 2020. We felt it was a good opportunity to ask these questions again, essentially trying to figure out, What solutions to the opioid crisis are supported by people in both countries, the way they feel about the situation that we have right now, and also how they feel about the way political leaders have dealt with it. And I would say that the first thing that really caught my eye is we see a significant increase in the level of great concern that Americans have about this problem. It's now at 60 percent, up from 53 percent two years ago. But in Canada, it stayed the same. It was 45 percent last year and it's 45 percent this year. So a little bit of cynicism and a little bit of dejection uh, when it comes to Canadians looking into the situation. Also, a very heavy urban rural divide. Um, People in urban areas more likely to be concerned about this. Those in rural Canada, not likely to believe that it's a major problem.
0: Hmm. And did you, I guess you didn't get into the reasons why or if it's because perhaps in urban areas maybe people are seeing it more or not not even that it's happening more, but it's just more on the street and more visible?
3: I think that is part of it. You know, looking into the way the situation unfolded in the United States, it really started in small towns. It started with doctors who were prescribing opioids at a very high rate And it moved into the cities eventually after a couple of years. So the way in which the crisis developed in the United States was really from rural to urban. And what we're seeing in Canada is uh, more a situation where the urban areas are the ones that are being affected by this, where people know somebody who has lost their lives. So the reaction from rural Canada looking into the findings is very different. You know, it's almost as if they're looking at this as an issue that is only happening in big cities. Because of the way in which prescriptions happen here, we're not having the same crisis that the Americans had a couple of years ago when it came to everybody in a specific town being uh, subjected to taking OxyContin.
0: Uh, the, this uh, survey also looks at kind of ideas that would be related to the opioid crisis and, and what people would be, I think, more in favor of or would like to see more of, things like education, awareness, more more spa- spaces for rehab. What kinds of answers did you get there?
3: Well, we see uh, a desire among residents of the two countries to take a holistic approach to all of this. Uh, We see a significant uh, level of support for more education and awareness campaigns, creating more spaces for drug rehabilitations. More than uh, four in five Canadians and Americans believe that this is the right way to go. Uh, But we have a little bit of a difference on things that are a little bit more contentious. Uh, For instance, the idea of having more legal supervised injection sites, 63% of Canadians and 56% of Americans. So it's a majority, but it's not as massive as what we see for education or for having more spaces for people who need rehab. Um, The other issue that really caught my eye is the way we're looking at decriminalization, uh, supporting Canada for decriminalizing all drugs for personal use went from 33% last year to 40%. Again, it's a minority. It's not something that is supported right now by, by most Canadians, but it's starting to grow. And what we saw in the United States was the complete opposite. Two years ago, almost half said, let's just decriminalize everything because this is wreaking havoc in our communities. This time around, it's down to 35%. So Canadians are getting more supportive of the decriminalization idea and Americans are walking away from it.
0: Hmm. And interesting, and you also asked people, and you touched on this, the idea of safe supply programs, and what kind of a response did you see
3: there? Well, it's very contentious because we do see a situation uh, where the numbers are a little bit higher. 74% of Canadians believe that this is the right course of action. And the expectation was, well, Americans are not going to be as supportive as we are. And they're actually at 80%. So th- the fact that this is really wreaking havoc in communities of a rural and urban nature is making Americans believe if we have a way to counter this by having safe supply programs, it'll save us from people who are overdosing or who are taking uh, tainted drugs. Uh, and this will save some lives. And it, it's one of the few questions where the views of Americans tend to be more on the high side when we compare it to what is happening in Canada.
0: Is that surprising to you if we look back at the history of, of drug use and the very different approach in the United States as far as the war on drugs and taking more of a hard-line approach compared to, to being what I think we would, would say that we've been a bit more open to, to more of the alternatives in Canada?
3: Absolutely. You know, we've had a a significantly larger experience than the Americans with all of these things, starting with the legalization of marijuana. You know, it's been four years since that actually was implemented in Canada. Uh, The U.S. continues to have this weird system where specific states allow you to use it and others don't. We saw that Joe Biden has now this idea of issuing a blanket pardon to anybody who was convicted of uh, having marijuana for their own personal use. So it's been a little bit of of a more difficult affair when it comes to the legalities. Um, but the expectation here was because Canadians have had safe supply programs for so long, and we've had a significantly larger experience when it comes to other ways in which we can deal with the drug use, um, the numbers would be higher. But it's actually Americans who are saying, we're seeing communities of all sizes being destroyed by the opioid crisis. So we're willing to do something that maybe five, 10 years ago would have been unthinkable. Uh, but this is the, the one thing that shows us the gravity of the situation in the United States. When you have Republicans who are usually saying, I don't like the question of say supply, saying if this is going to save lives, so be it.
0: Hmm. And and that is such a a big shift. And I think it is surprising looking at the numbers, like you've said, comparing uh, how Americans have kind of come around on that more so even now than Canadians.
3: Well, it's definitely uh, something that shows us uh, just how powerful this uh, situation has become. Uh, Even two years ago, we didn't have a significantly large number of uh, independents and Republicans who were willing to take these actions. And right now, with a change in government, with a democratic president, with more open discussions about what to do with all kinds of drugs, not just opioids, uh, even Republicans are saying, you know, maybe this is the right course of action. It would be different. And I think we've seen this in other policy matters. If this were something that was affecting only the urban communities, you have the Republican base in the rural areas going, we don't care. This is something that they need to deal with in downtown Philadelphia. But when you have small town Louisiana being decimated, By the drug uh, and and opioid crisis, um, even Republicans are going to start to look at some options.
0: And so why do you think, or does this give us any idea as to why there's kind of this uh, the the concerns being a bit stagnant in Canada? And and we see that every time, I think, the BC Coroner Service releases the numbers. And and sadly, we see those numbers go up every month as far as lives lost, lost to opioid addiction and to overdose. But even though we see those numbers and the numbers going up, it doesn't appear like we're really doing anything concrete or anything really extreme to try and stop it.
3: Well, I think it's a sense of dejection on the part of many Canadians. The fact that we are now, in a way, desensitized by what is happening around us. I remember seeing the numbers climb the charts in 2019, 2020. Then they get to 45% uh, in in 2021. And the expectation is, well, the problem hasn't gone away. There's more concern. There's more death. Uh, We all get the numbers. We all see how this is getting into other communities. And we continue to see 45% of Canadians saying this is a great problem. Now... Part of the situation here is it's a very difficult issue for policymakers. Uh, uh, Making a specific promise about what you want to do with this crisis is going to be very complex. And and it's not something that any government, especially at the federal level with a minority now, is going to want to to take a crack at. But, um, you know, we've seen... Uh, how, particularly here in British Columbia, the level of concern is higher than in other parts of the country. So I think there's a commitment, especially with so many new mayors coming in and a new premier being sworn in next month, that this is something that people want to see action on.
0: I found it interesting, too, one of the other findings, and we don't talk about this as much, but it was a pretty big number of people responding, saying that they would also like to see a reduction when it comes to the prescription of opioids by medical professionals.
3: This is a crucial aspect uh, and it's essentially what started the opioid crisis in the United States. And we have 75% of Canadians and 75% of Americans who believe it is time to reduce the prescription of opioids by medical professionals. It's something that is a little bit easier to implement here because of the system that we have, uh, but we've seen so many problems in the United States that began because of the easy availability of specific prescription drugs and you know it there's been a significantly larger debate in the United States about the role that the medical system played in the opioid crisis it's a little bit different in Canada because of the way our system operates Um, but ultimately this is the one area where there's clear consensus on both sides of the border Uh, We just don't think that this is the right moment to continue to be prescribing opioids in the same way that they were doing, particularly in the United States five or six years ago.
0: Uh, Was that surprising to you that we've seen again on an on a topic where there has been such a divide between the two countries that there does seem to be more of a consensus now?
3: Well, I think a lot has to do with the way in which the stories have been framed. Um, Five years ago, we didn't talk about the opioid crisis in the same way, especially in the United States. You know, we've been looking at a lot of American coverage because of uh, the, the enormous show that was Donald Trump's presidency, and they weren't really talking a lot about this issue. I think what is happening is happening because of other sources of entertainment. We've had movies, we've had miniseries that are talking about this. And I think this has enabled Americans to get in touch with something that they thought was only happening in the inner cities. Um, It's definitely part of the way in which people become more acquainted with things. And I think it has worked very well in the United States. Certainly not as far as implementing policy that is going to change things, but we know that what works in the United States is lawsuits. And some of the manufacturers of those opioid prescription drugs are certainly having a very small pocketbook right now when you compare it to what happened before those lawsuits were launched a few years ago.
0: All right, uh, very interesting findings when we take a look at about concerns and attitudes about the opioid crisis. Mario, thank you so much as always for your time today.
3: My pleasure, anytime.
0: Well, we started the show today hearing some of the promises by B.C.'s Premier-designate David Eby. He is now the leader of the B.C. New Democrats and next month will be sworn in as the next Premier. He talked about the cost of housing. He talked about the strain on health care, making it easier for people who are trained outside of Canada to transfer those skills. He talked about the impacts of climate change on communities, middle class, and the challenges with housing there he's got a lot to, to tackle as he takes on and uh, does this for the first 100 days at least that's where he was focused uh, when he was speaking earlier today so let's talk to a former bc premier about things and where things are in this province and Ujjal DeSange joins us on the line now thank you so much for taking some time and joining the show today good to be with you what do you think is the first big challenge or what advice would you give to uh, david eby as he takes on this new role
1: well, I think the first big challenge he has is uh, what has transpired over the last couple of days, uh, and that is to uh, uh, put uh, what happened with uh, Anjali Abadurai, uh behind him. And uh, perhaps uh, by raising all the issues that he has raised and things that he wants to do, um, uh, that would be behind him. But that's a big challenge in terms of the credibility, in terms of how this whole thing came down. Um, that's going to take away uh, from his uh, authority and from his credibility, at least for some time, until he settles into the role and accomplishes some things.
0: And when you say for some time, how big of a deal do you think it is as far as people remembering this or kind of holding this against him?
1: Well, I think that, you know, I think initially he's going to have some difficulty uh, but but over time, you know, health care is a lot more important than what's happening within the NDP. Uh, crime is a lot more important and housing is a lot more important than what's happening within a particular political party. And then I think people basically begin to focus on those issues. So it will take some time, but it will happen.
0: Right, because even as this all unfolded and it emerged that David Eby was going to be the uncontested new leader of the New Democrats, I mean, uh, some people I know, I, I saw the phrase that it was a blow to democracy. But, I mean, you could also look at it as well. This was another attempt by a group backed by uh, some pretty big names when it comes to uh, climate policy and the environment. Uh, they, too, were trying to kind of overtake a government in power, and that would also be considered a blow to democracy, wouldn't it?
1: Well, it would be, um, uh, except that, uh, you know, those, those groups aren't political parties. They are activists. They are volunteer groups. Uh, some of them are, bit, uh, you know, really well-organized, uh, but they weren't a political party. And uh, in, in that sense, I don't think they could overtake the NDP. Um, it, you know, it would have been difficult for even Angela Pothrae to uh, to really defeat uh, EB um, if there had been a contest I think part of the problem was that he and his friends didn't begin signing up until quite late, and that was a problem.
0: Right, so kind of an oversight, or kind of oversight or kind of not realizing that letting the party membership get down to those numbers might have been an issue?
1: Oh, absolutely. Parties, uh, as I you know said, parties become fossilized over time and when they're in power, they take things for granted, and when the leadership uh, contest hits as it did um, and when you think you're going to be the king without contest uh, then you do nothing and i think that's what happened uh, in this case and but i think he'll recover from it he's a very bright man um you know has accomplished a lot uh, somewhat controversial but that's that's part of the game that's part of the deal in politics some people like you others don't like you some agree with you others don't agree with you and that's part of the politics
0: do you think it will work in his favor in that uh, a lot of people would sum it up, I think, or I've heard this summed up a few, a few times, that even if you, if you don't agree with his policy, and like you said, some people will, some people won't, if you don't agree with his ideas, you can at least look at his track record, look at, at what he's done, and at least respect him as the person, as, as somebody who's doing this, and, and is there for hopefully the right reasons.
1: Oh, I think so. I think he's obviously obviously doing it for the right reasons. He comes from an activist background. Uh, He used to be with the BC Civil Liberties. uh, And, you know, I know that organization. It's made up of progressive people who want to change the society for better. So he comes from that background and uh, has done a lot of things, some controversial, others uh, not necessarily so. Uh, And he has a track record in that sense. I think once he... Once he settles down, he may be able to accomplish quite a bit because he has um, a a very good majority in the House uh, and there's no danger of him being defeated uh, in the House. Therefore, I think uh, his hands are not tied. Uh, He'd be able to overcome the initial obstacles and, and will be able to prevail.
0: Uh, He mentioned today, he was asked today about the fact that he wasn't technically elected by British Columbians. He agreed to, to maintain fixed election dates. He said he would not change fixed election dates. Do you think it matters to British Columbians how he became leader that it wasn't due to an election?
1: I think that's kind of, you know, inside the Beltway or inside Victoria building, legislative buildings kind of question. But but one could argue, you know, in that vein, one could argue that he has, in fact, two knocks against him, one that he isn't elected. I mean, I was elected just like that, and I had to face those questions. Uh, But the other uh, uh, argument against him, some people make, is that uh, he doesn't even have the uh uh, the endorsement from the NDP. There was no leadership campaign. Um, in fact, the only uh, candidate who vied for the leadership was disqualified. So, in a sense, he really didn't have a clear mandate from from the party in a, in a secret ballot. Um, but you know, as, as I said, these are academic questions. He's now the premier, and once he begins to do the things that he needs to do and wants to do, and the British Columbians want him to do, I think he'd be fine.
0: You're right. Once we kind of get past that, you're right. If somebody is a, is a store owner, a business owner that's just had their window smashed for the seventh time, they probably don't care so much how the leader became leader. They want to know what the leader is going to do about crime and about offenders that keep getting let out and uh, keep doing this. He was also asked about that today. He said no tools were off the table when it comes to, and he said he believes, yes, dangerous offenders should be kept behind bars. No tool is off the table and that he is going to tackle this. How big of a challenge, Joe, though, do you think that is going to be?
1: Well, that's going to be a big challenge. Uh, As you know, the criminal law, the criminal code is what uh, applies in British Columbia just as it applies across the country. And to make any changes to the criminal code, to the law, you need the federal government on side. And it's not easy to push through legislation through the federal house uh, if you uh, and your party don't have the government. So, uh, it might help him because uh, the federal NDP has an agreement, uh, a supply and confidence agreement with the current government, liberal government, so it might help him. But, you know, if you want to be any tougher in terms of application of the laws, you either look to the courts uh, or you look to the federal government to change the law. Uh, you can't single-handedly, no matter whether you're the premier or the attorney general of the province, you can't change some of those things. Right. But what you can change is what your directions are to the prosecutors in terms of what they do when they're in the courts and what they ask for. And, and those directions uh, are, are usually given by the deputy attorney general responsible for the criminal division um, and, and to, to whom uh, the attorney general uh, can, can give direction.
0: Uh, he uh, And being a lawyer, he would know that, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll draw on that experience. Uh, he also mentioned during his news conference today that his wife, as we know, is a family physician, so he has an advisor in his house who, who is there to advise him on health care as well. But he's also been, much like you, he, he's been in these roles of attorney general. He's been, uh, He's also been the housing minister. He's certainly been uh, involved in this for, for so long. And one of the criticisms has been, well, why did you have to wait till you were premier? These issues have existed. There have been problems and challenges. Why have you not tackled these sooner rather than when you've become leader? Uh, How does he overcome that?
1: Well, I think in terms of the uh, the crime issues, uh, he might not be able to overcome that because he was the attorney general until quite recently. And that's going to be somewhat more difficult for him because he has a record. And and some of these practices that other people are now condemning or talking about, like this in such uh, phrases as catch and release, um, those uh, kinds of things have been happening under his watch as the attorney general. So he might have a, a, a slightly harder time dealing with those issues. But in terms of housing, health care, um, you know, he has fresh eyes and I'm sure uh, I'm sure he'll he'll look at those and uh, he'd be a lot more credible on those areas. And in terms of the attorney general issues, if you have a new attorney general, uh, he or she brings his own credibility to the table.
0: When you look back at your time as Premier and what, was, what were the main issues there, what you were dealing with, what your main challenges were, and also as a resident of Vancouver, and you look now, here we are in 2022, and what David Eby, who will be the next Premier, what he's looking at, do you think the province is in a better place now or, or how do you kind of compare the two?
1: I think the province is in a better better place today than it was during my time in terms of the government itself. I mean, we were polling at 11 percent and we had very thin majority in the House. So we were kind of coasting from day to day and uh, we had some internal issues. We had a very, very difficult leadership campaign, a very difficult resignation of the premier. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of venom in the political arena, within our own political party. Um, and uh, and uh, with the exception of this Anjali Upladurai episode, uh, Mr. Eby has a clear uh, field to himself, and uh, he'll be able to overcome that minor issue or important issue, as people might feel. Um, and, and I think that it, 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 the province and the government is in a much better and a much different place uh, than it was then.
0: Right. And, and you make an interesting point looking at kind of the, the turmoil within the parties, but also, like you said, for residents, if somebody is looking for housing or if somebody doesn't have a family doctor or if somebody is, uh, again, a business owner who's been broken into a bunch of times, you really don't care that much about what's happening within the party. You want somebody yeah. to take action.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the issue, absolutely. In terms of the issues, uh, you know, I, I remember health care was the issue when I was the premier um, um, you know, crime, not so much because uh, we'd been tough for four years, so people thought we were doing something. Um, but uh, in terms of health care, uh, that was a big, big issue. It still is today. Um, the Ministry of Family and Children's was a big issue. That still is today. Um, so the, some of those issues survive. Any government has to deal with them.
0: What advice then would you give David Eby as he gets ready to be sworn in as the next premier?
1: Give very specific uh, and forceful letters of mandate to your ministers, and let them do their job.
0: And are there examples? then when when that hasn't happened, and uh, things have gone a bit sideways,
1: um, there, there have been. I wouldn't name names, but you know, when I when when we had uh, Premier Harcourt, uh, he was uh, he was a lot freer uh, than than some of the other premiers I've known or worked with.
0: So more uh, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, is the the phrase "run a tight ship." Uh,
1: no, don't run a tight ship. In fact, run a tight ship in terms of keeping uh, ministers um, in line, but give the ministers their their marching orders and let them do uh, what they need to do. Give them some freedom uh, to do what needs to be done. You can't be a micromanager and be the premier of the province. I think I think John Horgan ran um, a very uh, liberal a quote-unquote ship, uh, because he didn't interfere with the ministers, gave them their marching orders and let them perform or not perform.
0: Right. All right. Well, Ujjal Assange, it was great chatting with you, and thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this as we see what David Eby is going to be doing and what things will look like uh, in the near future.
1: Thank you.